Beloved, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Uh, This morning we are going to be unpacking verses 21 through 25. This is our uh, 57th uh, sermon in the book of Romans as we walk through this book, seeking to understand uh, God's Word in this glorious uh, section of His Word. Uh, I'm mindful uh, always uh, that we need the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds uh, as we listen to the Word, uh, even as we sit under the Word and we hear uh, its teaching. I'm reminded of uh, Charles Spurgeon's, uh, 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 what he used to do prior to uh, his custom before coming into the pulpit as he walked up the stairs. With each step, he'd say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And uh, so uh, we are mindful that as we come to Romans 7 again with some of its complex arguments, uh, that we need the Spirit. We always need the Spirit, which is why we pray the prayer of illumination every time we come to the preaching of God's Word. But for now, please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word in Romans 7 and beginning in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize our dependence upon the Holy Spirit to hear to believe, and to respond to your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would direct our eyes to our crucified and risen Savior, the one who saves us, wretched sinners, from the sin that so easily entangles and that makes us guilty in your sight. We pray, O God, that in the name of Christ, you would work powerfully, through the proclamation of your word, which is the power of the gospel unto salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have uh, many uh, in the church, of course, that are in uh, college or in graduate school or postgraduate school or perhaps a fellow uh, in some program. And uh, so uh, we know that there, is, uh, there are those who are looking for positions, thinking about future job opportunities. And when you're looking for a job, you want to have a strong what? A strong resume, or as they say in Britain, a CV, a curriculum vitae. We, we want to have a strong resume. This is something one learns when finishing up school, coming to the end of study. It's essential, isn't it, to, to demonstrate to a future employer that one has the necessary training and and experience, and skills, and requirements to get a good job, and to do a good job, and to gain access to all the opportunities and privileges of a new position. But dear ones, what if we thought for a moment about these things in spiritual terms? What if you were preparing a resume to gain a new status 
and position with God. What if you were making a resume to gain new status and position with God? What would you include on it? What if you were making a personal resume for access into heaven to obtain all the rights and the privileges of life forever in heaven and in communion with God? What would you include? Well, are there things coming up in your mind? Uh, A list of perhaps your religious affiliation, your church membership, your devotion to your family, all the quiet times that you've had over your lifetime, maybe some mission trips that you have gone on. The answer, of course, that you give would reveal much about your understanding of the gospel. Before becoming a Christian, the Apostle Paul's spiritual resume would have appeared quite impressive to his fellow Jews. And it was something that he was very proud of. Indeed, it was a resume that Paul firmly believed gave him right standing with God. What was on his resume? Well, he explains in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and following, doesn't he? That he was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the people of or tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, that is, beyond reproach, above reproach in his outward obedience to the law. For the first century Jew, it was the resume above all resumes. If I could only have a resume like that, many Jews would have thought I would be okay. Paul had the pedigree. He had the zeal and the good works. His life, according to Jewish standards, was indeed above reproof. But then he met Jesus. Then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his resume, which he had formerly viewed as gain, he thereafter considered what? Loss. Loss. By the grace of God, through the life-giving, life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was awakened to the fact, he was awakened to the fact that his spiritual resume fell woefully short of God's righteous standard. His list of good works, his list of religious affiliations would never justify him or any sinner before God. Obedience to the law could not save him because his obedience did not meet heaven's requirements of perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience in the presence of God under his law. Paul's own righteousness never met for one second God's holy standard. And indeed, next to God's standard of righteousness, his righteousness, his resume was as filthy rags. When the scales of unbelief fell from Paul's eyes on the road to Damascus, he realized that the only thing that should be on his resume to give him a right standing with God is the blood 
and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. I've shared the story before, but I'll share it again as it has come to mind. It's not always good to share things that just come to mind, but from time to time it works. I was in Geneva, Switzerland for the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. Walking through on Lord's Day morning through Old Town, Geneva, the bells from St. Pierre's Cathedral where John Calvin preached were ringing and we were walking up the stairs into St. Pierre's Cathedral and preaching that day is Sinclair Ferguson. Maybe you've heard of him. It was the worship service of all worship services in Geneva, in St. Pierre's, with one of the most celebrated Reformed preachers. And as he began to preach this very passage in Philippians 3, he said in his beautiful Scottish brogue, by my calculations here today, because there were lots of people there for a conference, by my calculations here today are nine seminary presidents, 16 seminary professors, 48 pastors, and he just was laying them all out. And I, according to my calculations, as a quick run-through last night, there are probably over a hundred books that have been written by the people in this room. And let me tell you something. All of it is dung in comparison to knowing Christ and being found in Him. And the point he was making was, too often we make much of ourselves, much of our ministry, much of our churches, much of our own performance, when in reality... We should hold all of those things with the deepest humility because compared to the righteousness of Christ, it is nothing. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Now listen, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, Paul writes, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, that is, all things, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the kicker. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from what? The law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of from God, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Does this sound familiar? Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God. The gospel, the message of what Christ has done, is the operative power of God by the Holy Spirit for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you see there, this righteousness from God is revealed in Christ to the lost. That's why Paul is unashamed to preach it. 
And here we have the same kind of language in Romans 3, excuse me, Philippians 3 and verse 9. Found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because the law can't save us. Obedient to the law can't save me, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on me receiving it by faith. That is what I put my hope and my trust in. It's in him. Well, then my friend David Strain's excellent commentary on Philippians, he references Robert Murray McShane, who is a famous 19th century Scottish minister from St. Peter's Church in Dundee, Scotland. And he points to a beautiful hymn that McShane wrote during a time of great sickness where he thought he was going to die. And in the hymn, he reflects on, uh, on his life before knowing Christ and then after and relates it to Jehovah Sidkenu. Jehovah Sidkenu meaning in Hebrew, the Lord our what? Righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. That's the Hebrew for the Lord our righteousness. Listen to what he writes here in this hymn. I was once a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord my righteousness, was nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu, t'was nothing to me. But then McShane met Jesus. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sidkenu, my Savior, must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came to drink at the fountain Life-giving and free, Jehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sidkenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Sidkenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field. My cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Dear sinner, do not hold on to your own Failed attempts to keep the law to make you right with God. Hold on by God's grace to Christ, who is your righteousness. There is nothing else that should be on the resume to make us right with God than Christ, His cleansing blood, and His righteousness. McShane's spiritual resume changed, as did Paul's. Beforehand, their resumes were filled with themselves, their own failed attempts to obey the law and all the requirements that God had set forth. All of their so-called accomplishments were there. But all that changed when they met Jesus. Their resume was revised. Their resume was revised according to a proper view of the law of God and the gospel. It was revised to say, Jesus, his blood and righteousness, that's what gives me a right standing with God. And it's in him alone that I will place my trust, not the law, 
and not my attempts to obey it. This has been Paul's point all along in Romans chapter 7. In fact, it's been his point all along from Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. This book, this, this veritable catechism for the early church, walking through the cardinal doctrines that every Christian must understand and embrace by God's mercy. It's here in Romans. It's like a mini Bible. And this has been Paul's point all along, that the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai and thus given to Israel has no power to save, no power to sanctify on its own. It was never given as a means of salvation. It was never given on its own to be a means of sanctification. Rather, we've learned in the past weeks, it was given to expose our sin and to aggravate and arouse our indwelling sin that we would see our need for a Savior. Indeed, the law was given as a mirror to expose the million blemishes on the face of our morality. We live in a weird age, don't we, with all the pictures and, and social media and, and everything else. And uh, it's very common, uh, isn't it, that when someone takes a picture of you, you say, hey, let me see that. Let me see that because that may go public. And I don't want like 10,000 people seeing me with some weird look on my face. Right? So what do you do? You walk up and you, you do this. You open it up and you kind of do the close-up. And you see if you look weird, or if one of your, your eyes is closed, or if your hair is sticking up, or you've got something on your face from lunch. Or as I saw this week, actually, as I saw some friends in, in Greenville, as I was walking back from the church to the, to the hotel, uh, I, I always took a selfie with these friends, and I had a big green piece of spinach right here in my teeth. And I thought, I'm so thankful I didn't send that to them. They may have posted it. But the law, what it does is, is it, it does this. It opens up your life. It zooms in. And it shows the spinach in your teeth, the blemishes on your face, the eye closed, the hair sticking up, all the inadequacies, all the ways that you don't measure up, that I don't measure up to the perfect requirements that the Lord has set forth. In the law, we are full of sin. The law was given as a mirror to expose the million blemishes on the face of our morality. Paul writes in Romans 7, 7 that, quote, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. The law was given, again, as a mirror to show Israel her need for God's covenant promise. His promise made in Genesis 3, 15... His promise, again, rehearsed to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. His promise shared over and over again in the temple sacrifices and highlighted in the preaching of the Old Testament prophets. That is, his promise of grace and salvation, which would be realized in God's Son, the Messiah, and received by grace through faith. The righteous shall live by what? By faith. But Paul's critics weren't getting this. Paul's critics, his fellow Jews, were criticizing him and blaming him for being an antinomian, for being against the law, for calling the law sinful or useless because of his teaching on justification being not by the law but apart from the law, that we are not justified 
by the works of the law, but we are justified by grace through faith in Christ. They were accusing him of encouraging lawlessness among God's people, but they were missing the entire point of, again, why the law was given by God to Israel in the first place. And this leads to Paul's argumentation in chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Now, again, we have gone over this for the last several weeks. As I've explained several times previously, Paul employs a rhetorical device to argue his point here about the relationship between the law and sin. He uses the personal pronoun I to represent not an, autobi- not an autobiographical struggle with sin, as is so often taught, as traditionally t- is taught, but the struggle of an unregenerate Israel under the covenant of works to understand the relationship of the law and indwelling sin. In other words, Paul uses this rhetorical device of referring to himself as I, but he's not really referring to himself, but to collective Israel. He is saying I as if he has collected Israel under the covenant of works and attempting to use the law as a means of salvation rather than what is truly for a means to show us our sin. And so he's, he's, he's entering, in, entering into the experience of unconverted Israel and, and, and its struggle to understand the relationship between the law and indwelling sin. And so look with me uh, again at verse 13. He writes, chapter 7, verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Why did God give the law? Not only that we would see our sin, but the very sinfulness of that sin to see how sinful it really is. And and God used what is good, namely the law, to expose what is bad, namely sin. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I, Israel, collective Israel, am sold under sin, although I believe the law is spiritual. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that the law is good. The typical Jew walking down the street would say, yes, the law is good. Yes, the law is good. My sin is not good, and I find that I'm struggling. I know I ought to obey the law, but I'm having a hard time obeying it. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's talking about sin as sort of taking up uh, the territory of the heart, and, 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 and like a, it's personifying sin, like sin has, has captured and taken over the heart. We'll see this language again in our text for today. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, let me stop and say this. It is true that the Christian believer still fights and struggles against remaining indwelling sin. Yes, that is true. I just don't believe that this text is dealing with that particular subject. I believe we find elsewhere uh, texts that deal with that subject of dealing with remaining indwelling sin and mortifying remaining indwelling sin. In fact, we see that in the next chapter in chapter 8. 
But here we see the struggle of Israel under the covenant of works. Paul's answering his detractors. He's answering his critics and saying, you're trying to understand the relationship between the law and your indwelling sin, about your focus on the law being that which is going to give you life when really it's going to bring you death and this indwelling sin that's confusing you. And also, of course, to highlight, as we will see, the glory of the person and finished redemptive work of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so that's really the first point uh, this morning is Israel's internal struggle with sin. There are only two points this morning. Israel's internal struggle with sin. We have seen it there. And he continues his rhetorical device to demonstrate collective Israel's struggle to obey the law that they believed promised life to them, but really brought death through sin. Look at me at verse 21. So I find it to be a law or a rule or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, you have all this teaching. Is this Paul? Is this an unregenerate Paul talking about his personal experience? Is this a regenerate Paul talking about his personal experience? Well, this verse right here, you could sort of take a lot of different positions, right? Because at the beginning, he says, he delights in the law of God and his inner being. Pastor, isn't this a regenerate Paul talking about his personal experience? What unregenerate person delights in the law of God in their inner being? Well, I believe that my interpretation of this text actually speaks to this. That Jews that walked down the street loved the law of God in their inner being. They loved the law. They delighted in the law. They boasted that they had the law of God. And so in their inner being, Paul knows, as one who used to be an unconverted Jew, that he delighted in the law in his inner being. But then he says in verse 23, now it sounds like an unconverted Paul, which again, it reinforces, I think, my interpretation. But I see in, a, but I see in my members, verse 23, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, that dwells in my members, captive to the law of sin. This seems to communicate someone who is unregenerate, captive to the law. In fact, earlier in chapter 6, in verses 12 through 14, we have this language. Turn with me there to Romans 6, 12 through 14 and 17. And here we have a description of sin as a master. Now here it's explaining that in Christ, sin is no longer your master. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Do you hear that language? Don't let it reign to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no, what? Dominion over you. That is master-slave language. Sin mastering it over its slave, namely us, in our natural condition. And it says, since you are not under law and its power and slavery, but under grace in Christ. So sin here 
in our text for this morning is personified yet again. It, it, it's close to us. It lies close to us. It's, it's in us. It's, it's holding us captive. It dwells within. And then the chapter ends in verse 25, doesn't it? Where it says in chapter 7, verse 25, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Again, even after the statement which I'm about to read, which is a glorious one, he goes back to this place of struggle. And so it, again, I think reinforces the idea that he is using this rhetorical advice to speak in the personal pronoun of I, but referring to the collective experience of Israel as a Jew who understands Philippians chapter 3, what it means to put confidence in the flesh and to put confidence in the resume filled with all kinds of good works and to put confidence in the law and as an unregenerate Jew to know that very deep struggle of loving the law, thinking that it gives something great, but then it not delivering. In his heart of hearts, Paul knew that he was not right with God, even as Luther knew that he was not right with God when he was going through his angst. And his father confessor said, Luther, don't you love God? He said, love God, I hate God. He demands perfection of me, and it is impossible. And of course, Luther, by God's grace, came to understand grace when he came to understand Romans 3, 21 and following that we are not saved by our righteousness, but a righteousness which has been revealed to us in the gospel. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul's point here, again, is that the law cannot deliver us from sin. Only Jesus can. And that brings us to our final point uh, this morning, and one that I hope to elaborate on more next time, God willing, And that is Israel's messianic hope and salvation. Israel's messianic hope and salvation. As Paul puts the spotlight on Israel's collective struggle to obey the law and to deal with sin, indwelling sin, and their confusion over the relationship between law and indwelling sin and the promise, Paul erupts here in the middle. It's, it's, it's almost like it was redacted. It's almost like this verse was thrown in there in a way that doesn't seem like it fits, right? Especially with that last verse, 25. Oh, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's there. It's like Paul, in the midst of this analogy, erupts into praise. But the first thing he does is he erupts into a declaration of guilt. And then he asks the vital question, And then he gives a word of thanks. Look at his declaration of guilt in verse 25, 24 rather. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. In our day, we have people scrubbing and sanitizing hymnals to take out language like that. Isn't that going to be damaging to people's self-esteem? Isn't that going to hurt people's feelings? We need to remove that language. That is so unkind. Oh no, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
is making this declaration of the real condition of Israel, the real condition of his own heart in his natural state apart from the gospel, and the condition of all of our hearts in this room apart from Christ. In Christ, it's a different story, but apart from Christ in our natural selves, we cry out, wretched man that I am. Paul declares the wretchedness of Israel as we uh, rehearsed last week, as we enumerated, Israel was a complete mess in the Old Testament. Cyclical idolatry, child sacrifice, one wicked king after another, the prophets who preached lies and the priests who devoured their own people. Wretched man that I am, Paul declares. He declares this of Israel. He declares this of himself in his natural state and of all people in their sinful condition. He already thoroughly explained, of course, the universal depravity of mankind in great detail from chapter 118 to chapter 320. And we took many weeks to cover that. But this declaration is a kind of summary statement for that entire section, isn't it? And perhaps if Paul were teaching us on this section of Romans, he'd take us to our Lord Jesus' famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. For it seems to so powerfully reinforce what's going on in this passage. You remember the story in Luke chapter 18? Turn there with me if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Again, we're thinking about this declaration of guilt. Wretched man that I am. Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus says, he tells this parable to some who, what? Trusted in themselves. He told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a picture. What an illustration of what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ has done. Amen? We are not saved by our good works. We are saved by Christ's good works. The good works he did all throughout his life in obedience to the law perfectly from the heart. And his good work of going to the cross and suffering and dying, the horrible pains of crucifixion and the wrath and curse of God in our place. Wretched man that I am. That is the heart cry of someone who recognizes their need for a Savior. Then comes the vital question, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
this body of death. The mind, the heart, the affections, the will, all corrupt, all poisoned, all sinful. Who will save me from the 10 mile long list of sins that condemn me before a holy God? It's the most important and consequential consequential question you can ask in this life. And what is Paul's answer? It's a word of thanks. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Some of you read the Puritan prayers, the Valley of Vision, uh, the Puritan prayers that are published by uh, the Banner uh, of Truth, uh, and uh, they are lovely prayers. Uh, One that is my favorite is called Love Lusters at Calvary. The prayer goes like this, and so beautifully reinforces this gospel and why we ought to give thanks. Enlarge my heart, warm my affections, open my lips, supply the words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. There at Calvary, grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son. Made a transgressor, a curse and sin for me. There the sword of thy justice smote the man, thy fellow. There thy infinite attributes were magnified. An infinite atonement was made. There, infinite punishment was due, and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might live forever. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that thou mightest spare me, all this transfer of thy love designed and accomplished, Help me to adore thee by lips and life. Oh, that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portals open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Praise God. For his gospel of grace. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be 
to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, dear ones, knowing the role of the law to expose our sin, not being a means of salvation, knowing God's requirements for reconciliation, for a right standing with him, knowing that only Christ's blood and righteousness will do what is on your spiritual resume. Maybe it needs to be polished up. Maybe it needs to be revised. May it for all of us be in Christ. May it be Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your law, for its function in our lives. We pray that we would not see it as a means of salvation, but as a means to show us our sin and to ultimately show us our need for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we are no longer under the crushing demands of the law because Christ met those requirements in our place and then gave his life to pay the debt of our sin. We thank you for this good news that in Christ our sin was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us and received by faith. And we now stand before you by your grace, repentant, forgiven sinners. Oh Lord, may we walk in that forgiveness. May we go forth in that joy of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are justified in your sight and being sanctified by your Spirit. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.